Good evening. Another mass shooting takes 10 lives in Boulder, Colorado, as President Biden vows action. City workers heading back to their offices in May and the vaccine that wasn't. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. Police in Boulder, Colorado, identified the 21-year-old suspect accused of killing 10 people, including a police officer and a hail of bullets at a supermarket. It was the second mass shooting in a week, leaving a community stunned, politicians scrambling, and a nation wondering what's next. Boulder Police Chief Maris Herald listed the names of the victims. Denny Strong, 20 years old. Nevin Stadinsky, 23. Ricky Odds, 25. Trelona Barkanoviak, 49. Suzanne Fountain, 59. Terry Liker, 51. Officer Eric Talley, 51. Kevin Mahoney, 61. Lynn Murray, 62. Jody Waters, 65. Our hearts go out to all the victims killed during this senseless act of violence. The suspect, Ahmad Al-Aliwi Alisa of Arvada, Colorado, stormed the King Supers outlet in Boulder, armed with an AR-style semi-automatic rifle and a handgun and wearing a tactical vest. According to an affidavit, Alisa purchased a Ruger AR-556 pistol, a weapon that resembles a semi-automatic rifle and has a 30-round capacity. He bought it on March 16th, six days before the shooting. According to the affidavit, Alisa's sister-in-law, told police on Monday evening that Elisa had been playing with a firearm she described as resembling a machine gun two days before the attack, upsetting family members. In Washington, President Joe Biden ordered flags flown at half-mast to honor the victims. They had just been raised after the shooting earlier this week. They killed eight people at massage spas near Atlanta. Less than a week after the horrific murders of eight people and the assault on the AAPI community in Georgia, while the flag was still flying half-staff for the tragedy, another American city has been scarred by gun violence and resulting trauma. And a state that I even hate to say it because we're saying it so often, my heart goes out. Our hearts go out for the survivors the, who had to, uh, had to flee for their lives and who hid, terrified, unsure if they would ever see their families again, their friends again. The consequences of all this are deeper than I suspect we know. By that, I mean the mental consequences, the feeling of anyway, just through too many of these. One of the victims was Eric Talley, an 11 year veteran of the Boulder Police Force. He was among the first officers on the scene. Talley, 51, was the father of seven children. I commend the exceptional bravery of Officer Eric Talley. And I send my deepest condolences to his family, his close, close family and seven children. You know, when he pinned on that badge yesterday morning, he didn't know what the day would bring. I want everybody to think about this. Every time an officer walks out of his or her home and pins that badge on, the family member that they just said goodbye to wonders whether they'll subconsciously, will they get that call? the call that his wife got.
House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leaders in Congress, said on Tuesday that the violence underscored the need for stricter gun laws. Biden called for passages of the laws and for legislators to go further and reinstate the 1994 ban on assault weapons like the one used in Boulder. While we're still waiting for more information regarding the shooter, his motive, the weapons he used, the guns, the magazines, the weapons, the modifications that apparently have taken place to those weapons that are involved here, I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. President Joe Biden earlier today. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he opposes the gun control bills, at least one that's been already passed in the House. But McConnell adds he has personal experience about the rise in hate. With regard to these acts of violence, they are absolutely horrendous. Let me focus for a minute on the shootings in Georgia. As the husband for almost three decades of an Asian-American woman, I have noticed and we have experienced over the years uh, racial prejudice against Asian-Americans. It certainly rose to the fore for everyone else when we saw these shootings. These despicable acts of violence uh, should need to be condemned for what they are. But the legislative solutions have been perplexing. And as I said, I share Joe Manchin's opposition to the version that passed in the House. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Meanwhile, at a news conference this morning in Boulder, a liberal college town known for its counterculture and progressive politics, Colorado Governor Jared Polis offered compassion for the victims and their families. It's a simple run for milk and eggs, you know, getting ready to, to shop, um, going in in a regular way. We all live our lives, something that we can all identify with, uh, led to a complete tragedy here today. And our hearts ache for those who lost their lives for their families, for the survivors left behind, for uh, the survivors who were able to get out, who have scars that can't be seen but are every bit as painful. Colorado Governor Jared Polis. Investigators say the delay in releasing the names of victims and the suspect was a result of the investigation. The FBI handled the crime scene overnight and the bodies weren't removed until about 2 this morning. The families were notified a process that took until 4 a.m. The federal district attorney for Colorado is Michael Dougherty. He identified the chief suspect. Then University of Colorado Boulder Police Chief Doreen Jokerst talked about Officer Eric Talley. His name uh, and his the community in which he lived is included in the press release, and yes, it was Arvada. Uh, I know that there's an extensive investigation just getting underway into his background. He's lived most of his life in the United States. And beyond that, we're still in the very early stages of the investigation. This time, we fully believe, we're very confident that the community is safe and that he was the only person involved. Obviously, it's early in the investigation. We're going to continue to run down every lead. It's hard. It's challenging. Um, I live three blocks up the street from that store. Um, 
you're worried about your neighbors, you're worried about your partner, you're worried about everything when you get that call. And so, yeah, I feel numb. Um, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to talk to victims, uh, their families. Um, you know, it's tragic. This officer had seven children, ages five to 18. I just had that officer's whole family in my office two weeks ago to give him an award. And so it is personal. This is my community. I live here. And to have something like this happen so so close to where you live and and to know the fear in the community and to know that the officers sacrifice themselves. It's heartbreaking. And that's University of Colorado Boulder Police Chief Jorin Jokerst. As Congress debates its next move, activists are demanding changes in how guns are regulated. The Battleborn Collective is a group of former United States Senate staffers advocating for progressive causes. Founding member Trey Easton worked for Senator Patty Murray, a Democrat in Washington state. President Biden's comments were very precise in that he laid the action at the feet of the United States Senate. You know, the House has now passed two pieces of bipartisan uh, gun control legislation. They did the same thing in 2019, and Mitch McConnell refused to bring them to the floor. I think President Biden directing the action towards the Senate was very correct. And, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, Paul. I, I, I hope that we can get action. I hope that, you know, Republicans will not filibuster legislation again. And and I hope that if they do, you know, there's at least 10 who can recognize that we are at a moment of crisis when it comes to, you know, the, the gun, gun control and we need action immediately. Why should the people who follow the rules have to give up their weapons because of uh, one person who they claim is mentally ill? There are lots of arguments around why we shouldn't, why we shouldn't. There's never the affirmative action of why we should. And it should be that we want to protect individuals from harm. Like that is the point of these public servants. That is the point of you know government in the first place. And Republicans never really have an actual proactive argument around that. Is an assault weapon ban the holy grail or... Is that in itself also a, a compromise? Because a lot of folks have said it's the handguns that are really the danger. The more egregious mass shootings have all been accomplished at the hand of assault weapons, these heavy capacity guns that will go a long way towards stemming the tide here. And the assault weapons ban in 1994, it actually wasn't filibustered. It was able to, to get across the finish line by a straight up or down vote. It was in place for 10 years. So I, I think it's not a question of if this is the one thing that will fix the whole problem. An assault weapons ban will definitely go a long way towards beginning to fix the problem. And you mentioned the filibuster. If gun legislation comes and it's facing opposition, could the filibuster be eliminated? I think it should be. And, you know, it's not just an impediment to progressive change, right? Uh, the last time common sense bipartisan gun control legislation came to the floor of the United States Senate was in 2013. And you had four Republican senators who voted for the legislation. It received 54 votes in a 100-person body. In most instances, that would mean that the legislation passed. But because of the filibuster, this bipartisan common sense legislation failed. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, how bipartisan is bipartisan enough? If it's not enough to have four individuals 
four Republicans crossing the aisle. At what point do we just say, this is untenable? We have to do something to address this crisis. And if the filibuster is the impediment to that, then it's going to take presidential leadership. It's going to take Senate Democrats coming together and saying, yeah, we can't let that stand in the way of actually addressing this crisis. Do we risk the possibility in this climate of exacerbating the divisions in America? The issue of gun control, of, of simple background checks, of ensuring that individuals who are on you know watch lists and have a history of mental illness not getting access to guns, these are things that unite Americans of most political stripes, something like 80 percent whenever it's polled. This isn't a question of taking everyone's guns away. This is a question of catching up with the rest of the world and handling gun control in a sensible and modern way. That's what we're talking about here. That is Trey Easton. He's a former U.S. Senate staffer with the Battleborn Collective. WBAI has been covering the growing political fight over gun control on the program Radio Gag, hosted by members of the groups Gays Against Guns. Jay Walker is a founding member. He says the bill being passed by the House of Representatives is a good start. There are several really great pieces of legislation, obviously, that have been introduced before, but are now being introduced again. Congresswoman Maloney has five pieces that she's put in, at least one of which has already been voted and approved in the House and is we're waiting for it to be taken up in the Senate. And I think a second one that was introduced by... I think the chances are really good. The real question is about what's going to happen with the filibuster. Some Democrats, Senator Manchin and one or two others, who their Democrats would still owe a lot to the NRA. Except for the fact that the NRA has been imploding slowly over the past couple of years. They've been outed as having been taking dark money from Russian oligarchs. They are under investigation by the New York Attorney General. They're having to decamp from New York at their official headquarters. There's a lot of feeling, I think, in the GDP community that the NRA is operating from a far more weakened stance. So you see a possibility of it passing? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that there is. There are definitely concerns about a couple of the senators, Manchin, Cinema, who are have definitely been problematic over some of the bills that we've worked in other areas that have tried to be passed. It's incredibly important that the Democrats take this moment to move as expeditiously as possible to get these bills onto the floor of both chambers, and if nothing else, then making people accountable for their votes. Laws like this, what effect might they have on the divisions in the country? It's a difficult question because what we've seen over the course of the last year is actually that we have had sharp increases in shootings in urban areas that trended Democratic. There haven't been as many shootings in rural or ex-urban areas that might be redder. But what we're seeing in terms of polling and what we've seen in terms of polling for a long time is that the vast majority of Americans want sensible gun control legislation. There's a lot of talking points from the right about, oh, they're going to come and take all of your guns and a lot of nonsense that's just political gamesmanship. But these kinds of bills that are being put forward in Congress right now are the kinds of bills that the American people want. So stop the sale of more 
AR-15s. There's absolutely like an assault weapons ban, but it's also about having federal background checks that are mandatory across all 50 states. You look at the situation in Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia has like some of the laxest gun laws at all. You don't have to have a license or any kind of permit in order to purchase the gun. And so this 21-year-old guy was able to go and buy his gun on the day he committed this mass shooting spree. There's no stopgap in there because clearly this guy was in a state, right? That he would go from place to place to place shooting up all of these massage spas. And if there had been a proper background waiting period, it's very possible that he never would have committed this atrocity. Anything like that? The people in the gun violence prevention movement are incredibly hopeful under the Biden administration. They actually reached out to us during their transition to many, many groups, met with us, uh, really discussed these issues and um, are on very, very firm footing with all the issues for gun violence prevention. So I, I think that that the country should be optimistic. Jay Walker is a founding member of Gays Against Guns. The program Radio Gag is heard on WBAI Tuesdays at 2.30 p.m. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. On a roller coaster ride of hope and despair, the AstraZeneca shot, the workhorse of global vaccine rollouts, went from gold standard to a risky proposition and back again in the course of less than a week. Numerous countries paused their programs using the vaccine, despite claims it was 79% effective in blocking the COVID-19 infection. In a highly unusual move, American health officials said on Tuesday the company's account of its U.S. trial findings had not been entirely accurate in suggesting that AstraZeneca had used only the most favorable data to generate apparently spectacular efficacy results. The dispute was apparently caused by a misreading of a news release by the drug maker. At least that's what Dr. Vauci says. But it had a devastating effect anyway. In France, Germany, Italy and Spain, more people now believe the vaccine is unsafe than that it is safe. Today, Dr. Fauci defended the AstraZeneca vaccine. It really is unfortunate that this happened. You know, this is really what you call an unforced error, because the fact is, this is very likely a very good vaccine. And this kind of thing does, as you say, do nothing but really cast some doubt uh, about the vaccines and maybe contribute to the hesitancy. It was not necessary. If you look at it, the data really are quite good. Dr. Fauci, meanwhile, in New York, officials are concerned about highly infectious variants of COVID-19 fueling the spread of the coronavirus across the five boroughs. And Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the indicators this morning. Number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 203 patients confirmed positivity level 56.28%. Hospitalization rate 3.63 per 100,000. New reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 3,334 cases. And number three, percentage of people testing positive for COVID-19. Today's report, a seven-day rolling average, 5.91%. So again, some good news in the reports today. The mayor also announced about 80,000 New York City municipal employees who have been working remotely during the coronavirus pandemic will return to their offices starting on May 3rd. Our city workforce is going to be coming back. The folks who are not already working in frontline positions, which is the vast majority of our city workers, the folks who work in offices will begin to return on May 3rd. And we're going to have 
uh, strict safety measures in place. We're going to use all of the tools that we've learned about distancing, about ventilation, the right way to allow workspaces. We're going to make it safe, but we need our city workers back in their offices where they can do the most to help their fellow New Yorkers. And it's also going to send a powerful message about this city moving forward. A lot of work going on in the next few weeks, uh, working with the municipal labor movement, make sure we get things right, and we are devoted to health and safety in all things. But this is an important step for the city. And Mayor de Blasio, the workforce of about 300,000 city employees includes many like police officers and firefighters who can't work from home. Asked if the return of city workers to offices could set an example for private businesses, de Blasio said each company will approach the question of whether employees need to be in their offices full-time or part-time differently. And Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins said on Tuesday that Democrats in the state legislature are really, really close to an agreement that would legalize adult use of cannabis products and allow New Yorkers to grow a limited number of marijuana plants in their homes. An impasse, as described by Stewart-Cousins last week over traffic safety concerns and impaired driving, has been resolved. The bill has stumbled in the past before reaching the finishing line over the last two years in Albany under full Democratic control of the state Senate and Assembly. Opposition to the proposal has once again been raised by law enforcement groups, including the State District Attorneys Association, as well as the State Sheriff's Association. Construction and business groups in the last week have also raised concerns with the impact of impaired people working at job sites. Still, lawmakers hope to build some momentum in the coming days to pass a measure prior to the full approval of the state budget, which is due by the middle of next week. And finally, a piece of the Wright Brothers' first airplane is on Mars. NASA's experimental Martian helicopter holds a small swatch of fabric from the 1903 Wright Flyer, the space agency revealed today. The helicopter, named Ingenuity, hitched a ride to the Red Planet with the Perseverance rover arriving last month. Ingenuity will attempt the first powered controlled flight on another planet no sooner than April 8th. It will mark a Wright Brothers moment, noted Bobby Braun, director for planetary science at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Carillion Historical Park in Dayton, Ohio, the Wright's hometown, donated the postage-sized piece of muslin from the plane's bottom left wing at NASA's request. The swatch made the 300-million-mile journey to Mars with the blessing of the Wright brothers' great-grandniece and great-grand-nephew. Uh, they said Wilbur and Orville Wright would be pleased to know that a little piece of their 1903 Wright Flyer 1, the machine that launched the space age by barely one-quarter of a mile, is going to soar into history again on Mars. Orville Wright was on board for the world's first powered control flight on December 17, 1903 at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The brothers took turns making four flights that day. A fragment of Wright Flyer's wooden fabric flew to the moon with Apollo 11's Neil Armstrong in 1969. A swatch also accompanied John Glenn into orbit aboard Space Shuttle Discovery in 1998. Both astronauts were from Ohio. NASA's four-pound, 1.8-kilogram helicopter will attempt to rise 10 feet into the extremely thin Martian air on its first hop. Up to five increasingly higher and longer flights are planned over the course of the month. The material is taped to a cable beneath the helicopter's solar panel, which is perched on top like a graduate's mortar board. For now, ingenuity remains attached to the rover's belly. A protective shield dropped away over the weekend, exposing the spindly, long-legged chopper. The helicopter airfield is right next to the rover's landing site in Jezero 
crater. The rover will observe the test flights from a distant perch before driving away to pursue its own mission, hunting for signs of ancient Martian life. Rock samples will be set aside for eventual return to Earth. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for joining.